0: Amen. Well, Luke chapter 2, if you guys have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2. Appreciate the choir and the the team for leading us, and and John as well. If you missed last week, uh, we did vote Dakota Unruh in as our next worship pastor, and he was going to be telling his church today and uh, we'll make that public. We'll post on that, you know, all that kind of stuff on social media. Um, But we are going to make sure that we send John off well. And so um, we've been talking about that. He's going to be with us through the new year and uh, January 15th will be John's last Sunday with us. That's almost two years to the day that he started. Um, He didn't have gray hair when he started either. You know, it's hard to believe. Oh, he had hair. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so we'll, we'll have, his last day will be that day, we'll have a little reception for him, and that's also the, the start of the January Bible study. And then Dakota, the plan is for him to start his first Sunday, January 22nd. So you can mark that on your calendars as well. Um, but Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, there is a, uh, there is a, um, a scene in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where Mr. Tumnus, one of the characters, says, it is winter in Narnia. It is winter in Narnia, and has been forever so long. Always winter, never Christmas. And in his commentary on this particular passage... Dr. Stephen Garber said, like every other son of Adam and daughter of Eve, I feel the winter of this weary world. This week, the death of a long friend, the death of a long marriage. This year, the deaths of other friends at moments that seem just too soon. For every one of us, with our families, our friends, our neighbors, our cities, in every relationship, in every way, we are burdened by what is tragically not the way it is supposed to be. And beyond what we see with our own eyes, the day-by-day onslaught of the news of the world is more often than not a window into a heartache and horror that seems impossible to explain. Garber goes on to say that across the board and all of life, we feel this tension of now but not yet of history and hope. As one recently wrote, he said, sometimes it just feels like there's a lot more not yet than now. From our most intimate and personal relationships on through to our most public and political responsibilities, he says, working out a vision of vocation that gives coherence to life is now more difficult than we ever wanted it to be. He concludes by saying, always winter and never Christmas. Always winter, never Christmas. Always waiting, always waiting. Seemingly forever stuck in the waiting place. We could talk about depression and anxiety and frustration and anger and disappointment and regret and fear. For us, all these words and others like them, no doubt, have been experienced over these last couple of years. Maybe months. Weeks. Perhaps even days or hours. So much has happened. So much is happening globally, culturally, locally, personally. So much has happened. So much is happening to the point where we're just fumbling about and mumbling, man, it's winter and it has been forever so long. Just always winter, never Christmas. Always waiting, always waiting. Seemingly forever stuck in this waiting place. And then, to top it off, we read words from Jesus like this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I mean, for starters, just consider the overall context of Jesus' words that we just read. He's in the upper room, soon to be betrayed by one of those closest to him, abandoned by those closest to him, denied, publicly humiliated, and eventually slaughtered on a tree. One can only imagine the brutal flogging, the humiliating mocking and abuse, the torturous, public, very public death of Jesus. And even consider the overall cultural context of Jesus's day, which we've looked at briefly over these last couple of weeks. There was oppression. And depression. There were injustices and brokenness and darkness and sickness. Everyone found hopeless and wanting and searching. Despite, as we saw, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, there seemed to be little peace, hardly any hope, and definitely no joy. And then you put all of that side by side with the overall global, cultural, local, and personal context in our day. There's oppression there's depression, there's definitely confusion, isolation, injustices, there's addictions, brokenness, darkness, sickness, everyone seemingly found hopeless and wanting and searching. There seems to be little peace, hardly any hope, and no joy. And so you're considering all of this, you might just catch. Catch yourself asking, especially after Jesus says his words, is where does Jesus come off talking about joy? Where do we come off reading about joy? Talking about joy, singing about joy, lighting candles about joy. Then and now it's it seems hard to believe, considering all circumstances, that anyone could be filled with true authentic joy. It seems quite better and more appropriate to say, always winter, never Christmas. And if this is where you are today, then you're right about where the people of old were, who were looking forward to an advent, to the advent of the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, longing for Him to bring something that was unexplainable, supernatural, extraordinary. For Him to bring them true, authentic joy that would fill their souls, rock their bones, consume their minds, and turn the world upside down. So in the cultural climate of Jesus' day, the masses, as we saw, were described as those dwelling in the land of deep darkness, as those harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. As those just waiting and waiting, perhaps concluding, and man, it's just winter, and it has been forever so long, just always winter, never Christmas. But then all of a sudden, Christmas came. As we see in Luke chapter 2, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. We read in verse 8, nearby Bethlehem. And they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. Then, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. In the cultural context, the global context of that day, the personal context of that day, an angel appeared to them. The extraordinary imposing itself upon the ordinary. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were, as we would be, gripped with fear, terrified, verse 10. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you the gospel. I bring you good news, good news that will cause great joy for all the people, for all nations. How so? Today in the town of David, this day, a Savior, has been born to you. Unto you is born this day. And he is the Messiah, the Lord. And this is going to be the sign to you. This is how you're going to know that this is the Messiah, that what I'm telling you is true. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Now, this was a timely proclamation in that day, just as it, as it is in our day. That the message would cause them joy. We bring you good news. A Savior has been born to you, and he's come to give you, ultimately, his joy. And this now goes back to what Jesus would say in the upper room that night. For those in Jesus, for those abiding in him, for those who remain faithful to him, he gives them not just any joy, his joy. This is crucial. Jesus, just like the angel, was not talking about a never-ending emotional ecstasy or a painless and griefless reality, one without any suffering and persecution and trials. Actually, the contextual backdrop that Jesus himself laid out in places like John 14-17 through is quite the opposite. He was not Trying to throw at us some health wealth jargon that if you just believe in me, you'll never have anything bad happen to you. As if to say, my joy that I'll give you means you'll never face persecution or sickness or suffering or dark moments or injustices or even death. That's not at all what he was saying. Jesus also was not talking about a feeling gained from any accomplishments or policies or programs. He was not talking about something that comes from anything or anyone in this world, including ourselves, let alone our personal and cultural circumstances. It doesn't come from the Pax Romana, as we saw last week, or the Pax Americana. This joy comes from none of that. Not that we can't get pleasure from any of those things. Not that we can't get a type of joy from any of those things but the kind of joy we're talking about is radically different. It's unexplainable. It's supernatural. It's extraordinary. It fills souls. It rocks bones. It consumes minds. And it literally, quite literally, turns the world upside down. And the source of the joy that we're talking about, the joy that Jesus, the angels are talking about, comes from nothing or anyone in this world. Jesus was talking about his joy. This is the good news that has caused our joy. The Savior has been born, Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah, the Christ. And in and through him, he has made a way for us to possess his joy. And this joy, as Peter would say, is inexpressible. You know it when you see it. You know it when you have it. But it's like there are no words to capture or express or describe this kind of joy. But we know it's powerful. It's a kind of power that can impact a dark soul or dark world like that of what we witness every morning when the sun's brilliant light just scatters the darkness as if it never were. That's the kind of power this joy has when it enters the individual, when it enters the culture, when it enters the world. Paul brought up Acts chapter 8 in his Sunday school time this morning. In Acts chapter 8, we see this great, massive persecution fall on the believers in Jerusalem. And we see that the believers are scattered out, except the apostles stay back. And as they go out, we read a story about Philip and how Philip goes to this community, and he begins to preach this good news, the same kind of good news that the angels preached to the shepherds that night. And he preaches the good news to them, and People are changed, people come to know the Lord, darkness is scattered, and what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 8 is that that whole community was filled with joy. It changes things. It's powerful. Think of Paul and Silas in prison. Think of the context of why they were in prison, brutally beaten that day, facing an injustice, yet they're praising the Lord. In essence, rejoicing, filled with joy. We know that this joy is powerful. We also know that it's infinite. It has no ceiling. It has no end. It's like an ever ending well just filling the souls of those who possess it. And what we discover is that this joy that Jesus talks about, this joy that the angels announce to the world, has everything to do with the presence of Jesus in our lives. Like peace... Joy is not so much about the absence of something than it is about the presence of someone. And that someone is Jesus. This is true for the individual. It's true for a village. It's true for a community, a family. It's true for the world. Joy is not so much about the absence of something that it is about the presence of someone, and that someone is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The angel declared the good news that would bring joy to all people. That news is that the presence of God is with us, among us. has everything to do with this birth of this little baby in Bethlehem lying in a feeding trough. This is what would bring joy to the entire world. Because in and through this child, we would have salvation. We would have hope. We would have peace. We would have joy, his joy. And you might argue, okay, yeah. But I know everything happening globally right now. And culturally. And locally. I know everything happening personally in my own life. So how can I even have this joy? This joy that fills souls, rocks bones, consumes minds, and turns the world upside down. How can I have that kind of joy and have it to the fullest, as Jesus said? Well, like peace... It's something we possess now and not yet. Think of it like this. There's this very famous popular illustration to show the power of compound interest and investment. It's a very powerful illustration. It goes something like this. Would you rather receive $10,000 a day for 30 days or would you rather have a penny... Doubled every day for 30 days. So it goes something like this. Would you, at the beginning of the day, would you rather have somebody hand you every day $10,000 for 30 days? Or would you rather start with a penny and have that one penny doubled every day for 30 days? So it goes from one penny to two pennies on day one, two pennies to four pennies on day two, four pennies to eight pennies on day three. You, you, you get what I'm saying, right? So this is the illustration. Would you rather have $10,000 a day for 30 days, somebody just hand you a new $10,000 every day, or would you rather start with a penny and watch that penny double every day for 30 days? So by experiment, let's just kind of toy around with this, okay? By a show of hands, how many of you, if you want to so do it, how many of you would take the $10,000 a day for 30 days? A few of you, yeah, okay. How many of you, David Morley can't, can't he can't participate? How many of you would choose the penny doubled every day for 30 days? They would do that? Okay. All right, you can put your hands down. Okay. For those of you who chose the $10,000 a day for 30 days, at the end of that 30 days, you'd have $300,000. That's a lot of cash. You can do a lot with that. But if you took the penny, doubled every day for 30 days, you wouldn't have $300,000. dollars You wouldn't even be near $300,000. Instead, you would have $10.7 million. That's the power of compound interest. Here's the kicker on day 25, 25 days of that, that's when you would surpass $300,000. In other words, you don't begin to fully comprehend and see the ultimate reward until the very, very end. 25 days it would take you to fully recognize the significance of your decision. And for 25 days, the rest of the world would call you a fool. You don't know what you're doing. You you don't know what you're missing out on. You don't know what you're saying no to. You don't understand the math and the purpose of all this. You're missing out. You're a fool. What are you doing? They wouldn't understand. But you, you know where you're going. You know what's coming. You know the reward. So despite everything, despite the persecution, despite them calling you names, despite whatever it is you might face, you are going to have a smile on your face. Even though for a time it does seem like you're losing, you're going to have some joy. Because you will know the end. And so you will be filled with joy during the entire thing, but you're also going to be looking ahead to joy knowing that your reward at the end of all of this is very, very great. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus because he's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. But listen to this. He says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame. Despised it. And Jesus had joy. Jesus had joy in this life. He was filled with joy, yet he was still looking ahead to the joy set before him. Thus he endured the cross. And then he what? Then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He got a very, very big reward in the end. And up to that point, people called him a fool, a lunatic perhaps even possessed by demons. Somebody who didn't know what he was talking about, what he was doing. Somebody who was dying at the hands of Rome. And yet at the end, he was proven to be the Lord, the King, God himself in the flesh. And this reality reflects what Jesus said in John 16, going back to the context of what he was getting at earlier. He says, I tell you the truth. You will weep And you will mourn, it's a guarantee, over what's going to happen to me. But the world will rejoice, and you will grieve. For a time, it's going to seem like you've lost. For a time, it's going to seem like you're the fool, and they're the victors. But your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. See, the $10,000, it feels more rewarding. It feels more significant, at least at first. The other, the penny, not so much, at least at first. Take day three, for example. Day three, if you're somebody who took the $10,000 a day, you're sitting at $30,000. The other person's sitting it with eight cents. It seems ridiculous, But it's the up-down-down-up paradox buried in the heart of the gospel message. Deny self and you'll find self. Be crucified with Christ and you'll live with Christ. Those who want to save their lives will lose them. Those who lose their lives for Christ will actually save them or discover them or find them. It's the broad road that leads to destruction. It's the narrow road that leads to eternal life. There's a way that seems right to a man at first, but its end is death. So following Jesus in this life may seem absolutely foolish and pointless to the world. It may even seem that way to yourself at times. But in and through him, those who follow him, those who abide in him, those who remain faithful to him, are those who possess a joy beyond understanding, beyond words. They're also the ones who possess a joy that is set before them. They have a reward at the end of all this that is very, very great. So they possess joy now, but they also look forward to joy then. So you may suffer this entire life. Nothing may go well for you in this entire life. Everything may go bad for you. But one day, for those in Christ, in light of the presence of Christ, in light of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, for those in Christ, your grief will turn to joy. The world will rejoice for a time. They'll chase their pleasures. They'll call you a fool. They'll say you're ridiculous. They'll say you don't understand it. You don't get the purpose of life. And you will grieve. But a new day is coming. This is what Christmas reminds us of. This is what the first advent reminds us of, that a new day is coming, that a second advent is near. Behold, the judge is at the door, is appearing as soon. And your light and momentary troubles, they're achieving for you an eternal glory that far outweighs any of this, in which your grief will turn to sudden and wonderful joy. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on what's going on around you. Don't, don't be like Peter and take your eyes off of Jesus and just start looking at the waves and the wind and so on. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And the Father elevated Jesus to the glorious and joyous position next to him. And you and I multiple co- times are called to have the same mindset as Christ, to live as Christ lived, full of joy, but also looking ahead to joy. I'll finish with this. There was a terrible blizzard in 1888. I'm praying that doesn't happen later this week, or you know it will get cold, but hopefully no blizzard. There was this terrible blizzard in 1888 that hit the United States. And what was difficult about it is that in January, it was unseasonably warm weather. But in a matter of 24 hours, it began to look like this. And they say in a matter of 24 hours, the temperature fell by nearly 100 degrees. In some places, it plunged to 40 below zero. So imagine one day it's 50s, 60s. We kind of get this every now and then. And then the next day, it's negative, 30 or 40. There were high winds, heavy snows, creating literally blinding conditions. Blinding conditions. Of course, they, the, the, the tragedy of it all is they didn't have these phone apps that they could look and see like 19 days out, what's going to happen. The sudden and massive change in temperature weather caught many people off guard. 235 people would die across the plains that day. But most of the victims were children. That's why it's become known as the schoolhouse blizzard, because many children had been making their way home from school. This was back in the day where they had to walk, you know, quite a ways and whatnot. But many of them had been making their way home from school, and they got caught in these conditions. And many of those victims were children who died. Of course, a lot of stories came out of this schoolhouse blizzard and everything, what happened, what didn't happen. But in one particular sh- story, it happened at a schoolhouse in South Dakota. The children of this particular schoolhouse had not left yet. They were still there. But just imagine in the schoolhouse, this sudden change of weather comes upon them. Children. It gets dark. It gets to where you look out the window, you can't even see. Frigid temperatures. Dangerous. And there they are just waiting, and waiting, and waiting. But then all of a sudden, there was these two men who knew the schoolhouse, knew how to get there and everything, and they literally, how they found it, I don't know, because literally there was no landmark. You just couldn't find places. But what they did is they knew there was a a nearby structure, like a house or something. That would probably be like from here to across the street somewhere. And they got a rope, and they tied the rope to the structure. And they then walked with that rope and found the schoolhouse. And one by one, they began to get the children out. But just imagine the children in this little schoolhouse, not knowing what's happening or what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, the doors crack open. And you see these two men who have come to save you standing there as though it were Christmas morning and their package had arrived. Imagine the joy of these children knowing we're getting out. Just imagine the shepherd's joy when they saw the heavens crack open, but then when they beheld the child in the manger The Savior who had come to save them, lying there. Christmas, finally, the package had arrived. And just imagine our joy at His second advent, at His appearing. When our Savior comes to save us, Christmas all over again. Yes, always winter, never Christmas That was true for a time, for a season. And we were stuck in the waiting place until Christmas came. And now in light of Christmas, in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, for all believers, our grief has turned to joy. And our grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy at His appearing for the reward at the end, which is very, very great. So let me finish with these words from Peter. I don't have the words on the screen, just listen. This comes from 1 Peter chapter one. Peter says this, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we have this new birth, we're born into an inheritance that can never perish, It can never spoil or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith you are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So in all this, you greatly rejoice. You're filled with joy, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness or authenticity of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though we're refined by fire, so that all of it may resort in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you haven't seen him, you've never seen him with your own physical eyes, but you love him, and though you don't see him right now, You believe in Him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, His joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christmas has come. It's what we celebrate every year. But we also know that Christmas, so to speak, is coming again. So set your eyes on Jesus and follow Him. Have the same mindset as Christ in everything at all times that you might be filled with joy. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I want to invite the team forward. We're going to have a time of response. And for some of us, I think our our prayer today is we've had a lot of things happening, a lot of things we see happening and I think our prayer is, Lord, just fill me with your joy, with your joy, and fix my eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, yes, despising its shame, but man, you, you have set him at the right hand, You've given him his reward, his joyous, glorious reward. Give me that mindset. Set my eyes on Jesus, especially with everything going on. Make that your prayer. Lord, fill me with your joy and set my eyes on Jesus. And for some of you in this room, as you're sitting there with your eyes closed, head bowed, you're still searching. Talk to somebody this morning who's still searching. Like the woman at the well, still searching. Thinking all these things can actually give us peace and joy and love and hope. It's only in and through Christ. It's not so much about the absence of something that it is about the presence of someone, and that is Jesus. Some of you need Jesus in your life. And he calls you to repent, to believe, and to follow him. Do that today. But as I pray, whatever decision you need to do, if you want to come pray at these steps, if you need to say, man, I want to join the fellowship of this church, if you need to follow through in baptism, if you need to give your life to Christ, even as I pray, you come down. Father, we come to you. We thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for the presence of Jesus. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your plan of salvation and redemption. We thank you for the message the angel had for the shepherds. The good news that would cause joy for all people that a Savior had come and that in and through Christ, Lord, you give us your joy. We thank you, Father, And I ask now that you'd fill us with that joy, knowing that we have a joy to come as well. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Follow him. Live as Christ lived. To think as Christ thought. Lord, bring salvation today. Bring renewal. Bring hope. Bring peace. Bring joy. Today. In Christ's name I pray. I'm going to ask that you stand with us as we have this time of invitation as we sing. You come.